Guys, thank you for being here, for listening, and for all the awesome support. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review. It helps us indies get noticed. So I took a break the past week with back to school and traveling to Dallas for the True Crime Podcast Festival. I'm a little behind on getting out new content, but I'm currently working on some new episodes that'll be released soon. In the meantime, I wanted to re-release an older episode. This is a case that here in the States didn't get a ton of coverage. It's the murder of journalist Kim Wall. Recently, I caught some of the HBO documentary Undercurrent, which is a two-parter on this case. And one discussion touched on women and their right to be able to go to work, to do their job, to engage in their passion, without having to be concerned about violence. As you'll hear in this episode, Kim was determined. She was a journalist that didn't want to just report on social issues, but was actively involved in change. And several times in the documentary, it's also mentioned that Kim, while in pursuit of the human connection she craved, the people she loved to write about, that sometimes she would travel to parts of the world that could have put her in danger. But Kim wasn't harmed in those places. She was murdered essentially in her own backyard. Which begs the question, what will it take for change? When can a woman really feel safe? We're told to carry pepper spray in parking lots, go to self-defense classes, share our Uber and Lyft trips with our loved ones, Make sure that the child lock is disengaged while getting into our Lyft or Uber. I recently stayed in a hotel room by myself while visiting Dallas, and there are all these recommended measures circulating online to ensure safety. Propping your door open with your luggage and checking out the room and behind the curtains before closing the door behind you. It's all so exhausting. As I'm recording this intro, there's a woman that's missing a victim of abduction that was caught on surveillance video near the University of Memphis in Tennessee. 34-year-old teacher and heiress Eliza Fletcher was forced into a vehicle a few days ago while out for a jog. A man has been arrested for aggravated kidnapping and tampering with evidence, but Eliza has yet to be found. And then there's going to work. Kim Wall was eager and excited to snag this interview you're going to hear about. She should have been able to do so, to engage with this local celebrity of sorts without fear, without becoming prey to his twisted mind and intentions. People will say she shouldn't have gone by herself, but she absolutely should have been able to go by herself. She should still be here. One update before the episode begins, Kim Wall's murderer is currently serving a life sentence, which in Denmark is relatively lenient and could mean he is paroled after 12 years. While in prison, Kim's murderer has been contacted by admirers and even got married to one of them while he was incarcerated. In September 2021, Denmark introduced a bill that will ban prisoners serving life sentences from entering into new romantic relationships. Here's an excerpt from an article with BBC News. Quote, Justice Minister Nick Hickerup said in a statement that these sort of relationships must obviously be stopped, 
and added that convicted criminals should not be able to use our prisons as dating centers or media platforms to brag about their crimes. We have seen disgusting examples in recent years of prisoners who have committed abominable crimes contacting young people in order to gain their sympathy and attention, he said. The new six-point bill will also put an end to long-term prisoners being allowed to post freely about their offenses on social media or to discuss them on podcasts. Now, this bill was introduced a year ago in September 2021, but I've been unable to find any information on whether it's been passed into law. So please, if anyone knows the status, reach out to me. And here is the story of Kim Wall. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. An award-winning journalist boards a submarine for a long-awaited interview and is reported missing the next morning. This is Method and Madness, Episode 20, The Murder of Journalist Kim Wall. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. Her father would always tell her that being a journalist meant being in the right place at the right time. So if your passion was for storytelling, shedding light on social issues, exploring the worlds of people from all walks of life, and that drive led you to an opportunity to interview, say, Elon Musk aboard a space shuttle he had built, you'd jump at the chance, right? In pursuit of what she was sure would make a great story, journalist Kim Wall reached out to a Danish inventor to get some insight into his world, his fascination in exploring the unknown. She boarded his homemade submarine one evening in Denmark, but never returned home. Let's dive in. Kim Isabel Frederica Wall was born March 22, 1987, in Trelleborg, Scania, the southernmost town in Sweden, to parents Ingrid and Joachim. Both parents were journalists starting at a young age, her mother a reporter and her father a photojournalist. As a child, Kim was creative and drawn to books and to nature. And having parents that would often travel for work and for pleasure, Kim was a world traveler herself at a young age. Her younger brother, Tom, was born in December of 1988, and the family traveled all over Europe, Australia, as well as Mexico and parts of the United States. Kim would tag along with her mom and dad when they were on assignment, whether it be gathering information for a story, meeting with an editor, or chasing the perfect storm for a photograph. She listened wide-eyed to the experiences of others, their struggles, their triumphs, their chaos. Kim Wall was no sheltered child, no wallflower. Growing up, Kim started writing about her adventures while traveling with her family, and the world that she saw brought her to an interest in peace and conflict studies. And it's those interests that guided her in her college search. 
Kim received a bachelor's in international relations at London School of Economics and Political Science and a dual master's degree from the School of Journalism at Columbia University in New York in both international relations and journalism. At age 24, Kim had her whole life ahead of her and thought about how she could make an impact on the world. She started an internship at the Delegation of the European Union in New Delhi. Although she was raised by two journalists, she was never in their shadow. She simply had ambition that led her career to take a similar trajectory. Her studies, scholarships, internships took her all over the globe. Cuba, Beijing, Nepal, Tibet, India. Her ability to speak Swedish, English, German, Spanish, and French only helped her in making new friends along her journey, and she immersed herself in the different cultures, growing more and more interested in world events. Kim herself had often said that what she loved was combining shoe leather reporting through a foreign policy lens. By age 25, Kim had made up her mind that She wanted to write about people, their lives, and according to her parents, to, quote, let her pen do the work in the fight for a better world. While attending Columbia in New York in the fall of 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey and the surrounding areas hard, and Kim reported on the residents in Long Island, New York, who had lost their homes to the massive storm and flooding. Her writing as an up-and-coming journalist was considered remarkable, and she won first place in the Foreign Press Association's competition for young journalists at age 26. At age 29, she received the award for Best Digital Reportage from the German Journalist Association on a report she wrote on climate change and the nuclear weapons testing and impact on Marshall Islands. Throughout her career, her writings appeared in publications such as The Guardian, The New York Times, Vice, Slate, and Time. Her dedication to writing about conflict-affected areas continued as she immersed herself into freelance journalism. She was trained in self-defense through the hostile environment and first aid training course, which prepared her for a trip she went on to Uganda. This was a woman who knew what danger could be around the corner in her line of work, and she was ready for it, but never afraid. In August 2017, Kim was dating a man named Ole Staub, and they were planning a move to Beijing. They had already packed most of their things. Kim had developed a love for China while studying there on a scholarship and considered it a second home and was studying Mandarin. But that move to Beijing wasn't going to happen. See, earlier that year, around March 2017, the talented Kim Wall had become intrigued by the story of a local Danish man named Peter Madsen, a 46-year-old self-taught engineer and entrepreneur. She had reached out to him several times but hadn't heard back. She had been hoping to score an interview and write up a good story. After all, Kim was a journalist that was deeply interested in people. Peter Madsen was a Danish inventor, a self-proclaimed inventorpreneur, and had become somewhat of a local celebrity due to his eccentric and unconventional hobbies, such as his interest in space travel and the fact that he had designed and built submarines through crowdfunding. He had a laboratory, Rocket Madsen Space Lab, and according to his website and the blog that he maintained online, 
He had a passion for traveling to worlds beyond the well-known and had associations with Copenhagen suborbitals, which was described as an open-source spaceflight program to have a person launched into space. However, due to some differences, Madsen eventually left the program, and that's how he established his own lab. Construction on the most recently built submarine, the UC-3 Nautilus, began from the base of a wind turbine in 2005 and cost $200,000 and took three years to build. The project was made possible by a group of volunteers and donations. Upon completion in 2008, the submarine was 59 feet long, weighed 33 tons, and had 16 portholes. It was equipped with a periscope that consisted of five video cameras and 360-degree panoramic vision. While operating on the surface, the sub could be crewed by up to eight people and when diving, up to four. It was officially launched on May 3, 2008 in Copenhagen. The submarine was kept in Denmark, docked at Refshell Island, and Madsen had dreams of building a rocket to go to space. Peter Madsen was born January 12, 1971, in Denmark. As a kid, he became interested in rocket science and eventually joined a rocket club in Copenhagen. He aspired to be an engineer and tried his hand at getting a degree but never completed school. He did, however, become self-taught in building submarines using knowledge he had gained through welding courses. He went on to build three homemade submarines, which garnered a lot of attention both locally and globally. Fascinated by the self-taught rocket scientist, Kim had contacted several publications to get information and to hopefully secure an interview with the rocket builders. She knew, as did most in the area, that Madsen had a plan to launch his rocket, Flight Alpha, that August. So on August 10th, 2017, when Kim received a text message from Madsen agreeing to an interview, she jumped at the opportunity. She and her boyfriend Ole were planning for their move to Beijing and had put together a party along the water in Refshell Island to say farewell to their friends. During the gathering, she received an invite from Madsen. He asked her to his workshop, which was nearby for tea, and although she was unsure about leaving her guests, she ultimately jumped at the chance she had been waiting for this, so she left her own party to go conduct the interview. She returned to the party about 30 minutes later and told her boyfriend that Madsen had invited her onto his sub. She asked Olay to go along, and he would have gone, but felt it best to stay there as they had invited guests. Kim left, kissed Olay goodbye, and promised to be back in a few hours. The pair were attending a wedding the next morning, so neither wanted to be out too late. About 7 o'clock that Friday evening, Kim boarded the UC3 Nautilus, a smile on her face as she waved to onlookers on land. Her photo was captured from the tower of the submarine. Throughout her first hour with Madsen, Kim texted her boyfriend, providing him with updates and sending photos of the submarine, of her at the steering wheel. Her final texts to Olay that evening were, I'm still alive, by the way, but going down now. I love you. He brought coffee and cookies, though. And the last text that Olay received from Kim that night said, We're diving now. 
The trip began in the Orisund Strait, cruising through the waters between Copenhagen and Sweden, and then it submerged under the water around Kog Bay. Meanwhile, the goodbye party continued at a nearby bar, but Kim still hadn't returned from her trip, which was only supposed to take a couple hours tops. And the texts to Olay had stopped. That night, after returning from his night with his friends and calling and texting Kim with no response, Olay couldn't sleep as he grew increasingly worried. He couldn't get a hold of her, she wasn't reaching out to him, and this was way out of character for her. At a little after 2 a.m., he called the police and then the Navy and reported Kim missing. He spent the night riding his bike around Rushell Island looking for Kim. He also went to Madsen's lab, hoping that maybe she and the inventor were there, but the only person he came across was Madsen's wife, who had no information. In fact, she was surprised to hear that someone was even with her husband in the sub. That only made Olay more alarmed. The submarine was not docked where it usually was, and Madsen was also not answering his phone or responding to texts. At 5.30 the next morning in Trelleborg, Sweden, Kim's mother, Ingrid, woke up to her phone ringing. It was Ole on the other end of the call, and he told her that Kim had boarded a submarine the day prior and that she was missing. Ingrid and Joachim Wall had planned to head to Berlin that day to celebrate their anniversary, but now they were launched into a real-life nightmare as they tried to process what Ole was telling them. They were very close with their daughter and weren't aware that she had gone on a submarine the night before. It had all happened so quickly. Their minds immediately went to the best-case scenario in hopes that Kim was fine. They assumed there must have been some kind of accident and that the submarine was on the seafloor and she'd be easy enough to locate and rescue. While talking on the phone and trying to get updates about the search and rescue, both Joachim and Olay were conducting internet searches on how long oxygen can last inside a submarine. Twelve hours kept coming up, and it had been almost that length of time since Kim had boarded. They knew they were in a race against time. A search and rescue had begun early that morning as a result of Olay calling the police and the Coast Guard and pleading with them to take him seriously. Law enforcement, the Coast Guard, and the Danish military were all out searching, but Kim's parents learned that they were only searching the surface, not underwater. It seemed there was reason to believe that the sub was sailing. Ingrid and Joachim saw that the big news that morning was the missing sub and the two people on board. It was all over the TV, although no mention was made that it was their daughter. That was good. They didn't want the media hounding them as they figured out where Kim was. They texted their family, though, and let them know that it was Kim that was missing. And then they rushed to meet Olay at Rushell Island, where the Nautilus is usually docked, about 45 minutes from their home. They walked around, keeping tabs on the investigation by checking their phones, and Kim's parents contacted her younger brother, Tom, and kept him posted on updates. He was a photographer working in Helsingburg. Kim's parents and Olay drove over to the hangar to see if they could speak with Peter Madsen's co-workers. There, they met with the people that worked with him, who were also worried about his well-being. 
Inside, they saw the rocket that the group was working on for the upcoming launch. And then, a call came in that the submarine had been found, and everyone on board was fine. It was about 10.30 a.m., and Ingrid, Joachim, and Ole were elated and relieved as they sent messages to their family, letting them know the good news. Minutes later, though, they heard another update. It was confirmed that the submarine was indeed located, but only Madsen was found, and he would be brought to Dreyer Harbor. Three boats and two helicopters had been searching the water from Copenhagen to the island of Bornholm on August 11th, and the submarine was spotted by one of the rescue helicopters. In response to a call of help from the Navy, Christian Isbach, the owner of a local marine company, responded. He sailed out toward the sub around 11 a.m. and saw Madsen standing on the sub's tower. The sub was at the surface, sailing in the bay southeast of Amager, but after being spotted by Isbach, Madsen disappeared down into the submarine, and about 30 seconds later, airflow started to come up and the sub began to sink. Nearby, a fisherman pulled Madsen out of the water after he swam from the sinking sub. The fisherman took him to Drager Port, where Madsen was met by waiting reporters as he tripped coming up to the dock. And of course, everyone wanted to know why the sub had sunk, and more importantly, where was Kim Wall? Cameras from the media captured Madsen after he was rescued, and a reporter could be heard shouting to him, Are you okay? to which Madsen responded with a thumbs up. I am fine, but sad because Nautilus went down. And he did seem fine. He didn't show any signs of being rattled or panicked, just matter-of-fact as he walked along, answering questions. Madsen said that he had dropped Kim off in Copenhagen a few hours after the start of the trip, and then he went back out into the water. He said the submarine sank due to a faulty ballast tank. He was without his cell phone. Kim's parents, along with Ole, drove to the police station in Holmdervet, where they were each interviewed about when they last saw Kim, what she did for a living, and her mom recalled her last call with Kim on Thursday around lunchtime about how happy they both were that Kim had Ole in her life and how Kim had said he was definitely the one. The whole time that Kim's family were talking with the police, tons of questions racked their brains. Where was Madsen? What was he saying? Could they talk to him? Were police able to trace Kim's phone? Early that afternoon, the police said they were going to attempt to get inside the submarine, which was laying on the bottom of the bay, but turned out it wasn't possible to do so in a safe manner. The family was still in the dark about Kim's whereabouts. The police were kind and helpful, but there was no news on where their daughter was. As Kim's brother Tom arrived at the station, he also was pulled in to speak with the police. And while waiting for an update, around 5.45 p.m., Tom turned the TV on inside the police station, and it was then that the family saw the breaking news that Peter Madsen was under arrest for murder. This was the unfortunate way 
that the Wall family and Olay had learned of Kim's death. The next day, Kim's parents wrote an open letter expressing their grief, thanking the police and asking for help if anyone knew anything. The letter read in part, We, Kim Wall's parents and brother, are currently experiencing the worst days of our lives. No one can imagine what we're going through. As a journalist, Kim has worked in many dangerous places, and we have often been worried about her. That something could happen to her in Copenhagen, just a few kilometers from her childhood home, we could not even imagine. Now it looks like the worst has happened. This is why we will appeal to anyone who can help us find out in any way what has happened. There's nothing we want more than to get Kim back alive, but we realize that the chances of it are extremely slim. They also posted a similar yet more brief sentiment on Facebook, thanking everyone for the support despite the anguish that they were going through. Friends and family created a private group on the social media website, and people started to share memories of happy times with Kim, memories that really showed her personality. And all over the world, people who knew Kim sent flowers, notes, and messages of love to her family, gestures that helped the family get through each day. Those who knew her, whose lives were touched by Kim in some way, were shocked. Meanwhile, Madsen was arrested on August 12th and was facing manslaughter charges, but hadn't yet been formally charged. Basically, police were sure he was somehow responsible for Kim's death. There was no body, but his story wasn't adding up, and investigators were working with him to find out what had happened to Kim. They suspected Madsen had sunk the submarine intentionally. And why would he do that? This was a project he had poured so much into, he must have been attempting to cover up something. He stuck to his story that Kim had been dropped off that Friday night, but as evidence began to emerge, his story began to change and would go through several drafts through the investigation. The submarine was retrieved from the water and brought to North Copenhagen on Sunday, August 13th. First, it was drained of more than 9,000 gallons of water, and once it was on land and secured behind a fence, forensic scientists entered. But there was no body inside, and it was reported that there was evidence the submarine was sunk deliberately. Neither Madsen's nor Kim's cell phone were retrieved. Without any trace of Kim, the search continued, with law enforcement searching the waters and volunteers taking their own boats out to look for the journalist. You always hear from victims' families that the worst part is the not knowing, and Kim's family were in agony as each day passed and they still didn't have answers. A week later, on the afternoon of the 21st, a cyclist came across a torso on the beach in Amateur. Police delivered the news to Kim's family that a body was found, a female body, but that it was only partial remains and it wasn't clothed. Law enforcement needed to identify it through DNA, and Kim's parents provided them with one of her toothbrushes she kept at their house, while Olay handed over her hairbrush from home. Two days later, through DNA analysis, it was confirmed to be Kim Wall. On August 25th, Madsen faced preliminary charges of indecent handling of a corpse. September 5th, Madsen attended a pretrial hearing and explained how Kim had died. It would be impossible to stick to his Kim was fine when I left her BS. Madsen confirmed that Kim Wall had indeed died inside the Nautilus but denied murdering her 
or causing her death. Madsen said that during their trip, he had been holding up a 155-pound hatch door, but that it had abruptly shut after slipping out of his hand after he himself had slipped on the floor, and that the door unexpectedly struck Kim in the head, killing her. He said that he panicked and intended on giving her a burial at sea, but couldn't fit her body through the sub door. So he dismembered her. This was to also explain how her partial remains were found in addition to blood reportedly found inside the sub. His next move, he said, was to intentionally fill the sub with water, telling investigators that he intended on dying by suicide, but changed his mind and called for help. On October 4th, after the torso was examined by the coroner, police reported that there were 15 stab wounds inflicted on it and that most of the wounds were done to Kim's groin area. They hadn't found her clothes, though, and were searching for an orange sweater, a skirt, and white sneakers, who Kim's friend, Yan Kong, said had sentimental value, as Kim and Yan would pass the shoes back and forth to each other and send each other photos of themselves wearing them, as they reported, from different parts of the world. Police, the military, volunteers, cadaver dogs were still searching for the rest of Kim's remains. Finally, two plastic bags were discovered, which contained legs, clothing, a knife, a piece of metal to keep the items submerged, and a skull, also weighed down with pieces of metal, that was identified through dental records as being Kim Walls. Upon the medical examination, it was discovered that there was no indication a 155-pound hatch door had struck her. Her skull had no fractures consistent with such an injury. So now it was time for Madsen to revise his story. On October 30, 2017, he now claimed that Kim had died from carbon monoxide poisoning, but he couldn't be sure. He said he had been out on the deck while she was stuck inside as a defect had caused the hatch door to close and he was unable to get inside. This was disproven later in court when Dit Dyreborg, a lieutenant commander in the Danish Navy, testified that no trace of exhaust gas of carbon monoxide was detected on the boat and that in a small dose, she said, it wouldn't have been lethal anyway. Additionally, the coroner reported that Kim's lungs had no damage consistent with heat damage or any other sign that she had inhaled fumes before dying. Kim's autopsy showed that she was either strangled or had her throat slit. Additionally, police surmised that some of the gashes to her body may have been done to ensure that her body would sink. The strategic damage to her body would have allowed for gases to pass from her body and prevent it from rising to the surface, although this theory was later challenged in court. And in late November, on two separate dates, Kim's arms were found by divers in the water south of Copenhagen. In January, police stopped searching for Kim's and Madsen's cell phones, and on January 16th, Madsen was formally charged with murder, dismemberment, and indecent handling of a corpse. Peter Madsen initially refused to hand over his computer to investigators, claiming they held his business secrets. 
Considering he was being held for murder, he had no choice. There were several videos found on one of his iPhones, on his hard drives, and computer. 140 videos, in fact, that would later be shown as evidence at trial. While Madsen wasn't the video creator, the content was a window into his mind. They showed animation of naked women being impaled and decapitated. Madsen underwent a psychiatric evaluation in preparation for trial, which he also initially refused to do. While speaking with forensic psychiatrists, it was reported that Madsen's manner of speaking was matter-of-fact and that he showed no empathy for his victim. When asked about the mutilation of Kim's body, Madsen replied, quote, What do you do when you have a big problem? You divide it into something smaller. He also had told them that, quote, I don't want corpses on my submarine. Working with the prosecutors, psychiatrists noted that Madsen had narcissistic and psychopathic traits, a severe lack of empathy and remorse, and was extremely untrustworthy, as well as being a pathological liar. His lack of empathy was highlighted by his reasoning that Kim's family would not suffer any more pain by receiving Kim's body in pieces rather than intact. Charged with premeditated murder and aggravated sexual assault, Peter Madsen pled not guilty, but admitted to the third charge of desecration of a corpse. On March 8, 2018, the case went to trial in Copenhagen. Before two judges and two jurors, the prosecution, led by Jacob Bush Jepson, were out to prove that Kim's murder was premeditated. Evidence presented were the facts that Madsen brought tools on board the submarine, tools that he hadn't ever brought before and tools that were not necessary in order to control the sub, such as a knife, saw, and a sharpened screwdriver. These tools, the prosecution had said, were used to mutilate Kim's body and to weigh her down so that she would not float to the surface. During the trial, several women that had once been associated in one way or another with Madsen testified. One woman said that he had made sexual advances on her several times, which she continuously rejected, and that Madsen was obsessed with the idea of women and death. According to her, Madsen would fantasize about a, quote, comfortable death that in his mind meant being locked in some kind of vessel with kittens and naked women. Another acquaintance of his testified that Madsen was fascinated by snuff films and was interested in making one. Christina Jacobson, the coroner who performed the autopsy, testified that Kim's genitals had 14 stab wounds internally and externally. Kim had multiple lesions on her head and torso, and the cuts on her torso would have occurred shortly before death. While the specific cause of death was unable to be determined, Jacobson said that Kim most likely died as a result of either drowning, strangulation, or her throat being cut. During Madsen's testimony, he explained his multiple accounts by saying, quote, I wanted to spare her family and the world the details about what actually happened when she died because it's gruesome. Still sticking with his story that Kim had died of gases while he was locked out of the sub and stuck up on the tower, Madsen said on the stand, quote, I tried to explain to Kim through the hatch how to stop the necessary engines. For 5 to 15 minutes, I tried to get into her. 
When I finally manage to open the hatch, a warm cloud hits my face. I find her lifeless on the floor, and I squat next to her and try to wake her up, slapping her cheeks. Toward the end of the trial, Madsen's defense attorney gave a version of events where she tried to convince the court to have Madsen released. According to her, Madsen was only guilty of desecration of a corpse, which carries a six-month sentence, and that he should be free with time served. The final words spoken came from Peter Madsen himself as he glanced in the direction of where Kim's family was sitting in court and said, I'm very sorry. April 25th, 2018, Madsen was convicted on all charges and sentenced to life in prison, which in Denmark means an average of 16 years. It also means that he could be released in as little as 12, which according to the Danish Penal Code, is when a convicted murderer can apply for parole. Historically, only four convicted murderers in Denmark have served more than 30 years. However, there was some time added to Matson's sentence later, which I'll get to in a minute. Denmark is reportedly the fifth most peaceful country in the world, according to data from 2020. So does that explain why the penalty for murder is so light? It's a safe country, so let's impose lenient sentences? Judge Annette Burko said the murder of Kim Wall was, quote, a cynical and pre-planned sexual assault of a particularly brutal nature on a random woman who, in connection with her journalistic work, accepted an invitation for a sailing trip. She agreed with the prosecution that Kim had been sexually tortured to fulfill Madsen's violent sexual fantasy. Madsen appealed his sentence, but an appeals court upheld it, with Kim's family present. None of this changed much for Kim's family. In the book they wrote about their daughter, they said that the sentence made them feel ambivalent. They weren't getting their Kim back. In August 2018, Madsen was attacked by a fellow inmate, an 18-year-old, but he was not seriously injured. While imprisoned at Hurstedvester Prison, Madsen began speaking with a journalist, Christian Linneman, who recorded their conversations to be made into a TV series. On those recordings, Madsen can be heard confessing to killing Kim Wall. While he didn't go into details, he simply answered yes when Linneman asked if he had killed Kim on board the submarine. He also said that there is only one person who is guilty, and it's him. And unfortunately, to this day, nobody has heard exactly what Madsen did in that submarine that day. In 2018, Peter Madsen's wife left him. He got remarried to a 39-year-old Russian artist in 2020. After receiving a lot of hate mail regarding her recent nuptials, Madsen's new wife defended her decision on Facebook, writing in part, quote, Next time you will give yourself right to bother strangers with actions like mentioned above, you should be ready for being treated the same way. I love and respect my husband. I am proud of him and 49 years of his human and professional life, except for one day that he was and always will say is a tragedy. My husband committed a horrible crime and he is punished for that. 
However, knowing him for real gives me an exclusive right to say that I am lucky to be with the most beautiful, smart, talented, devoted, blah, 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 blah. My husband is the one of two victims of his crime. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's basically what she said. Anyway, in October 2020, Madsen found freedom briefly after he escaped from prison. First, he threatened a guard inside the prison, saying that he had explosives on him and a pistol. He was let out of the prison, where he then got into a van by threatening the driver and ordering him to leave the prison gates. He didn't get far. The van was stopped by police moments later, and Madsen exited the van and sat off to the side in the grass while law enforcement brought in a bomb squad to check out a belt the prisoner was wearing. While he sat for the next 90-ish minutes, he threw something that looked like a gun. It was later determined by a robot that his belt was not equipped with any explosives and he was thrown back into prison. Another 21 months was added to his sentence for the escape. Let's try to get a glimpse inside Peter Madsen's brilliant but disturbing mind. It was reported that in 2015, Madsen had sent a text message to two colleagues saying, quote, There is a curse on Nautilus. That curse is me. There will never be peace on Nautilus as long as I exist. Evidence presented at trial showed that Madsen had been planning this murder for some time. He had a violent sexual fantasy and was becoming obsessed with it. So why on that day and why Kim Wall? Psychologists said he was psychopathic, which can be a result of genetics, your environment, or the makeup of your brain. Considering some of the traits of a psychopath, such as impulsivity and poor behavioral controls, was he using this day as the ideal opportunity to act out his fantasy? Was this a day that was particularly um, impulsive for him? Could it be that he had thought of Kim Wall's request for an interview and decided she was his victim a few days before the murder? Did he know that she was moving and that this would be his last chance? Did she fit the criteria in his mind for the perfect woman to carry out his sick fantasy? Was it the perfect murder in his mind because it was a near guarantee that he could get her onto his sub? It wasn't a secret in Peter Madsen's circle of friends that he would attend sexual fetish parties. The sexual nature of the murder was evident by the wounds to Kim's genitals. And the women in Madsen's life were witnesses to the dark side of his mind where sex and violence often met. Peter Madsen reportedly didn't have a violent upbringing, but apparently did witness his half-siblings being abused by his father, their stepfather. Dr. Todd Grande, a mental health professional who gives his opinions and insights into the criminal mind on YouTube, took a look at the person that is Peter Madsen and noted that the experts at trial described him as psychopathic and narcissistic, a pathological liar with a severe lack of empathy, but that he was not psychotic. The personality profile that Dr. Grande put together included the following traits based on his observations, the experts at trial, and what Madsen's acquaintances said about him. Creative intellectual curiosity, highly extroverted, easily bored, and described by friends as charismatic. He was also described as rebellious and had difficulty resisting temptation. Madsen was prone to mood swings and would throw tools at various people when he was angry. Dr. Grande also noted that Madsen had specific fetishes and pursued many women and took them onto his submarine, most likely building this murder fantasy over time. 
And while taking Kim Wall onto the submarine was planned, it was odd that Matson hadn't thought about what would happen after the murder. After all, people knew that Kim was with him. In the fall of 2017, Kim Wall posthumously received the Trelleborgs Alejandas Culture Prize, a prestigious award, and the cash prize was added to a memorial fund her family has set up in her honor. The Kim Wall Memorial Fund, which, according to its website, has a clear mission, quote, We unleash the potential of women journalists as champions of press freedom to transform the global news media. I'll put the link to the Kim Wall Memorial Fund into the show notes. Kim's family wants people to remember what an incredible life she had, that she had many friends that loved her and went on amazing adventures with her. They want people to remember that Kim had so much left to do in her life. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It helps. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes or you just want to say hi, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.